This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, today, we are talking about something that really does affect so many uh, folks around the world, which is vehicle theft. And that's because the month of July is Auto Theft Prevention Month. And to join me to talk about this is Matt Dingbaum, who is an investigator at the Iowa Department of Transportation, and Amber's own Tom Foster, our manager of the law enforcement program. Uh, Matt, Tom, welcome to the Amphicast. Glad to be here, Ian. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Yeah, Thomas just said, "Welcome back." It's been a while, but uh, but here, but here you are. So you know, it's interesting. We we're doing some some research, and I want to share some of the things that that I learned, um, and kind of put into perspective to me, and maybe you guys can can elaborate. More than a million vehicles, on average, are stolen every year, uh, and that equates, at least into the U.S., a motor vehicle is stolen every thirty-two seconds. Uh, in in the United States, and it's more than just the guy or gal on the street breaking into a car and stealing it, but it's really sophisticated fraud uh, that we see in our motor vehicle community that leads to stolen vehicles and and the movement of stolen vehicles. And I guess that's where maybe Matt, I'm going to start with you. You know, when you hear folks talk about vehicle theft. And obviously, a lot of folks just equate it to, you know, the old school, somebody with, you know, the, you know, some device to pop the lock and hotwire the car, if that's even a steel thing, or I might be dating myself and driving it away. But it's a lot more sophisticated than that. It, it truly is. And I think, I think when people ask me like, hey, Matt, what do you do? And I talk to them about you know, being involved in the vehicle theft world and things of that nature. Um, I think that's the key is, is in people's minds, they're still thinking people are just running up to a car, breaking the window and driving away with it. And that is happening. I mean, it's, it's happening with young adults and adolescents and things like that, but a lot are shocked to hear the sophistication that goes into this and how big of a criminal organization this has become to where, you know, everybody knows what identity theft is, right? When we talk about your credit cards being used and, and somebody's identity being assumed, but really what we're seeing now is a, a vehicle, a car, a trucks, that's identity is being stolen. And we're starting to see them switch numbers, create fraudulent documents, which then sometimes can get them good government documents uh, to make it all look legitimate and just push whoever the victim is down the road because vehicles are very fluid. They get sold over and over and over again. They move around the country or internationally very quickly. So it has become a very fast growing uh, criminal organization. So when you when you use the phrase stealing a vehicle's identity, you know, to, to, let's let's unpack that a, a little bit. You know, the folks, some folks might be listening and like, what do you mean a, a vehicle has an identity? What what does that mean? So 
every vehicle, as most people have heard of the VIN or they'll hear VIN number, it's the serial number for the car. So it's the number the manufacturer says, this is the identity we're going to give this vehicle. And the way that starts is the vehicle, just like people are born with a birth certificate. In the vehicle world, we call it a manufacturer certificate of origin or manufacturer statement of origin in MSO. And that is the birth certificate. And when that vehicle becomes new, then it goes into the first person who buys it. It goes into that person's name on uh, a government issued title. When these vehicles are stolen, what we're seeing now is these vehicles are being cloned. And what that means is they're taking the VIN either from another vehicle that exists that matches this vehicle, or they're creating a synthetic per se vehicle where the algorithm of the 17 digit VIN falls within range. It's just, they never manufactured that many of those vehicles. And they're actually creating that vehicle as it's existing. And then they're creating fake paperwork that they then bring into our government offices and try to get a legitimate document. If they can get away with that, they can then take a VIN, overlay it, or just switch the VINs out. And now they have a title and they have a registration and they have license plates that now match and have now completely concealed the identity of the stolen vehicle. Mm. But when, if someone backtracks even the legitimate documents to that false VIN or the duplicated VIN, I'd imagine there'd be a description of the vehicle on the legitimate documents that may not match where that VIN really should, the vehicle that that VIN really should have been assigned to. Or is it, like you say, it's close enough that you wouldn't know the difference? Correct. So a lot of times, um, what I saw years ago was there were these vehicles coming in uh, on MCOs or on MSOs, and the VIN structure was correct, like it fit into the algorithm. But let's say BMW or Lexus, the last six of the serial numbers, what they consider the sequential number, right? That's the actual serial number for the car. Well, that number was much higher uh, than what was manufactured. Now, there were ways to catch that. There are resources out there that we could run. And you wouldn't see that vehicle popping up until the vehicle had 70, 80,000 miles. And that's just not normal, right? Because most vehicles you see starting with three or four or five miles, and then you can consistently track them up. But we have we had a large number of vehicles popping up that start their life with 60,000 miles. And that vehicle never existed before. There was no shipping record for it and things like that. So that's one way we're able to track them back to see if they're legitimate. And when you see there, there are tools out there that helps to do it. Obviously, those that listen to the Advocast are must be thinking, well, Nemvitis. Nemvitis must be a tool that helps to stop this from happening because at that time of a, of a title transfer, a title application, that some of those checks are, are being done. Am I oversimplifying it by, by saying that? No, I think the I think uh, Invitas and the and the Invitas law enforcement access tool are uh, one of those resources that everyone's going to go to and start with because they want to track back how many titles has this vehicle had, what's its history, and that's a very good starting point. But and I don't know whether you know you or Tom are best to address this. You know the difference between an Invitas check that the DMV is doing in the title transaction versus the law enforcement access tool that you as an investigator might have some additional information than what the DMV may be doing in the title transaction itself. Tom, why don't you explain that? Cause I think you'd do a good job at that. Yeah. Let me, let me take a shot at, uh, at helping out with that one. 
um, the the this. The DMV clerk is going to do an invitus check whenever a vehicle is being registered and a, and a title is being transferred. And they get, they're going to receive certain information, but we, there's a lot more information available to our law enforcement investigators. And in terms of accessing the invitus, there's one other key point that I want you to keep in mind, and that is our consumers. Before they ever purchase that used vehicle, uh, we encourage consumers to check the invitus also. Now, they don't actually have a NVIDIA app or the ability to access NVIDIA directly, but we have uh, 17 currently uh, identified NVIDIA access providers or history providers uh, that, that they can go to uh, by accessing vehiclehistory.gov. And that'll tell them who these providers are. They can run a history check and look for anomalies, look for things that don't sound right. Uh, Matt mentioned mileage being off, mileage not simply not making sense. Maybe it's initial mileage in the system is 60,000 miles. That doesn't really make sense, does it? There's probably something to that history that needs to be looked into further. Our, uh, our clerks, most clerks in this country uh, um, take the fraud detection and remediation training that's produced by AMVA. And that tells them, educates them on what they should be looking for as they're doing these vehicle transfers. And it, it'll help them identify anomalies that simply don't make sense, but we encourage them to reach out to their law enforcement counterparts whenever they find something that just doesn't seem quite right. And, uh, and those guys have access to the law enforcement access tool, which is a federated uh, search system that's going to look at NCIC. It's going to look at Okra and see if it was stolen out of Texas. Uh, we're getting, we can get stolen information out of the Canadians as well. So we've got lots of uh, information that we can access to help us identify if there's a problem with that vehicle. Now, you mentioned earlier an example of, say, a vehicle that comes in and all of a sudden has 60,000 miles on it as, as an example of something that something's unusual here. Are there other common flags that, you know, we've learned over the years are potential indicators that this might be something referring to law enforcement? Yeah, I think the indicators that we see, uh, normally when you're using resources like the Invitas Law Enforcement Access Tool, uh, Carfax, AutoCheck, uh, different resources like that, what you're going to see or some red flags should be uh, if you see the vehicle is being titled in two different states at the same time, especially if we're talking just a month apart or something like that, and you see a consistent renewal year after year, but that vehicle appears to be getting titled in these different states. Um, another thing you might see uh, is you might see a flag somewhere where the vehicle's been exported or been imported, uh, but yet that vehicle's appears to be being driven here and is being recorded here, whether it be at service stations and things like that. The other thing could be you could have one vehicle potentially in Texas at the exact same time, you know, having service done in Texas at the exact same time that vehicle's having service, let's say in Alaska. So I would say anytime you see your vehicle, you know, consistently in two different places or in two different states, that's going to be one of those red flags or indicators. Now, when you get these referrals and as you're digging into them, tell me more about what you and uh, maybe other investigators are, are starting to discover. Because you know, when we started, we talked to Matt, you, you mentioned, you know, they think about the one person's just breaking into a vehicle and driving it away. But we're learning that these theft rings are much more sophisticated part of organized crime, uh, fueling funds for other nefarious activities that's well beyond just stolen vehicles, but it's part of a, a larger 
crime puzzle, for lack of a better phrase. So, you know, Matt, let's start with you. What have you learned about, you know, when you start to peel away these cases, what's going on in, in this crime world? Well, and it's, it's amazing because they don't always stick to the same scheme. Once they get a scheme down, it goes for a while, but then all of a sudden you'll see it change. I would say one of the most recent trends that we've seen now, or at least an uptick in our area, is what we're seeing is we're getting a lot of vehicles being purchased. And these are high-end vehicles, um, several tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and these vehicles are being purchased under false identities, right? It's it's a driver's license or an ID that they've obtained that is it it's either another person's true identity, name and date of birth, or it's a synthetic identity where it's somebody else's name put with a different social security and credit score. Um, and the, the the thing that we've been trying to tackle is is we're peeling these back. We're trying to educate, whether it be the finance companies. Uh, the financial institutions, uh, the large franchise dealers, um, the red flags to, to look for uh, as to, to what might signal, hey, there's something we need to look at before we make this approval and potentially deliver these vehicles. And now that we're in an internet-based world, right, where people are buying online, one of the struggles I'm seeing in my cases is it's hard to find anybody who's actually seen the fraudster or the actor. Mm. All they're seeing is the stuff that's submitted online. And maybe the person who delivered the vehicle is the only person who ever even saw the, the, the real individual who actually is making the transaction. That's been a huge obstacle. And, and uh, I, I think they know that's a huge obstacle. And so, you know, that's a, I guess, a business vulnerability for these dealers, What's the role for the public agency in that? I mean, obviously, we have a role in enforcing the fact that they're committing fraud, but there, there must be this line between these dealers need to take precautions to protect their business and then where you and your colleagues would step in and say, okay, now a, a crime has been committed. And on a crime may not even be the right word. You, t- you tell me. Yeah, and I think – I think there's another breakdown because when these get sophisticated like this, there's a breakdown because let's say the dealership is in this city. They made an agreement with somebody, right? There may have been a down payment. There may have been something there. Maybe there was a trade-in vehicle or whatever the case is. So when that vehicle leaves the dealer's lot and we find that that thing was purchased via fraud, Okay, so their first complaint is going to go to law enforcement. Law enforcement may look at that and say, hey, you know what? This is a civil issue. You made an agreement. That person gave you money. You need to go deal with that. Well, when we come in, I would say uh, DMV investigators or somebody more in the world, I would say that I'm in. When we get in there, one of the hardest things we're trying to determine is who is the victim? Is the dealership going to be the victim? Is the insurance company going to you know, pay the dealer and now the insurance company is the victim. And how do we get the vehicle reported stolen? Because that has to go through a law enforcement agency. So we need to contact the law enforcement agency and explain to them, yes, it's a, it appears to be a civil issue, but it's not. This is a theft. This was an intention to permanently steal the vehicle uh, from the dealership, from the insurance company, whatever the case is. Um, so that has been a big struggle is just getting everybody. And these actors and fraudsters, they know the scheme, right? I uh, I work on the Mississippi River. Like I cover the, the uh, right along the Mississippi River between Iowa and Illinois. So they know all you have to do is put a river in between you or a border. And now you've comp- 
complicated it even more because now you're bringing in jurisdictions from other states and then they may go title it in a third state. And now you have three states involved. And I, I assume what they're thinking is hopefully whoever's going to work this, look at it, investigate it is going to lose interest uh, in this case. And eventually we just walk away the winner. Uh, and, and that's once again, that's that's a huge struggle. Yeah, Tom, I guess, you know, that seems to be a natural place where we AMVA can help and assist with that, you know, inter-jurisdictional collaboration, because I think, you know, Matt's right. You know, I think a lot of times, even those that are best intentioned go, wow, this this is now more complicated because we've got multiple authorities across multiple jurisdictions. And is it worth it because this dealership got duped, right? I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect here, but nevertheless, you still have this complicated piece of the, you know, cross-jurisdictional coordination. Um, Tom, since you're working across the jurisdictions, what are you hearing about that, the challenges or the opportunities to, to build that network? You know, Ian, that's a great question. There's a, there's tremendous educational opportunity, and that's something that we've talked about on the NVIDIA's Law Enforcement Subcommittee, is how to educate uh, investigators in every jurisdiction to recognize when it is a crime that's occurred. It's not just a, a civil matter, uh, as some like to say, you know, Matt alluded to that. Um, we, we do a case study in, uh, when, I, when I present on the law enforcement access tool, and I talk about a, a case where a vehicle was stolen um, by somebody purchasing it off of Craigslist, but using um, using fraudulent a fraudulent cashier's check to take possession of the vehicle. They then sold the vehicle on Craigslist the next day, and there were some real red flags there in the, in this case. The person uh, who sold the vehicle was selling it for half of what it was worth, half of its blue book value, half of what he allegedly paid for <laughs> with his fake check. And uh, the person that bought it was uh, actually a resident of Iowa. Matt might have even worked this case. Uh, they purchased the vehicle for about half, about $13,000. It was a $25,000 vehicle. And so buyer beware. Uh, the buyer, we often say that if, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is going to be true. And in, in, in the case that we talk about, these people bought this vehicle and then registered it in Iowa and it had come from Michigan. Michigan by way of Chicago, and now it's registered and titled in Iowa. The original owner of the vehicle raised the flag to his DMV and got a hold of an enforcement officer who said, you know what, this isn't just fraud or, or isn't just a, a, a civil matter. This is a case of fraud and a criminal matter. Checked in Invitus and found that the vehicle is now titled in Iowa. And the case was, uh, was solved at least to the point where we got the vehicle back to its original owner. Um, Unfortunately, the people that bought it out of Iowa spent their savings on this vehicle. Uh, and the first words out of their mouth, according to the investigator that did the case, was, I knew it. They knew that that $13,000 was too good to be true. And it was. And, uh, and unfortunately, they were out their savings account and they didn't have a vehicle to show for it. And it was, it was a mess for everybody all the way around. Uh, but but uh, congratulations to that agency for recognizing they had a crime in front of them. Yeah. But in that case, the person that's out, they were out there $13,000, back to, to Matt's point about who's the victim, or is there no recourse for somebody like that? Because here they are, that they're clearly a, a victim. They're not the only victim, but they're clearly a victim of the fraud. Is there no recourse for them to, to get back their stolen money? So, 
So I can tell you, this is a, this is a struggle that we have, especially where I'm at, you know, being near the border. Uh, and the reason is, is, and, and I'll use Chicago, for example, uh, just because it's what's close to me, um, in a very large hub for stolen vehicles and, and uh, things in this world. But even if we can, let's say, prove who did it, let's say we put the case together, we've we've wrapped it up with a pretty red bow. We still have to find a prosecutor in an area, you know, in a metro area like Chicago with with you know violent crimes every day and things like that. We have to get it to them and find someone who's willing to go and put it forward. And and just to be honest, and this is this is not putting anyone down, to find someone who wants to take a sophisticated scheme on when maybe there was no one hurt violently or something like that. Um, and it's just a financial f- crime. It's very hard to get people uh, or, or find a prosecutor that will take that case and, and do what needs to be done to get it to prosecution. Because the thing is, this isn't a crime where, uh, I mean, sometimes it may be, but it's, it's not like you have one guy doing 500 cars or a thousand cars. You might have 500 people doing one or two cars. So now you're going to the prosecutor and you say, hey, I have 500 people that stole two cars or three cars or four cars or five cars. Now they may have made $400,000 off of those four or five cars. So you have the dollar amount, um, but you still have to get interest and you still have to sell it. And that's our job. Our job is to sell it to the prosecutor that it's a good case. It has merit. Um, It's just in today's world, it's very hard to make that sale when you have violent crime, everybody's backed up. The caseloads are just tremendous. So, um, so to your point, should they be? Absolutely. Are they being? It's a case by case basis. And, you know, as you look at those that are that are committing the crime, are the are most of the fraudsters that example of these individuals who are doing one, two, three, maybe half a dozen of these simply to pocket money? Um, and that's the beginning and the end of it. Or are there other you know, we hear sometimes and maybe sensational headlines that are the exceptions rather than the rule of these larger crime syndicates that are running these schemes to then generate funding for organized crime or international terrorism, you know, in some cases. Yeah, I would say, um, I guess in what I can speak to is what I know. And I can, I can say a lot of the people that we end up convicting in Iowa, um, because when, and when I say convicting in Iowa, I'm talking about the people we catch that are bringing these documents into our treasurer's office and our government agencies. We normally, um, I, I don't want to say all, but I would say normally we're getting the straw person, the straw titler, if you'd want to say it that way. These aren't the people who may have stolen the car. These, these people may not even know where the car's at, may never have even seen it. They were either paid money or drugs or whatever it may be to say, Hey, we want you to go in and title this vehicle. Those are the people we're, and we are getting conviction here in Iowa because we're a much more rural state. Uh, we have, you know, much more ability to go after crimes of that nature and things like that. So we are getting those convictions, but I would say a lot of ours are on the straw people. They're the people they put in between. A lot of these cars are in the metro areas uh, going to these hubs like Indianapolis, Atlanta, Miami, and stuff like that. A lot of these vehicles may or may not be being exported, you know, so I'm sure it's all part of a larger crime scheme. Um, it's just a matter of 
we're really just chipping away at the people who are showing up, not not the true actors. But obviously, that's the the goal is to get to the big actors. Uh, very hard to do. Right. So in many cases, you're dealing with the the middleman, as I as I like to say, it's just pushing the paper in between. Correct. You mentioned the idea of you know that it, it might get exported. Um, talk to me a little bit about about that about a vehicle that's stolen and then might be sent out of the the country. Uh, at that point, do you have any jurisdiction? Is there any recourse? I mean that you know we talk about you know working across a river. I can't imagine having to work across an ocean. Correct. And and so when those vehicles are exported in other countries, a lot of these vehicles, whether they be classic cars or high-end luxury cars or whatever, they're getting a lot more money for them overseas, which is why that export business is so uh, lucrative. And then you run into that jurisdictional issue, right? Is if that vehicle goes out on a ship or whatever, are we ever getting it back? Are we ever going to see it again? Um, I would say if if we had the individual who stole the vehicle was the same person who got the ownership document, you know, legitimately or illegitimately or however you want to say it. Um, if we could show all that and then show that the vehicle was exported and it was all within our jurisdiction and there weren't any other loopholes involved, I would say that person we would have a very good chance. I don't think we're ever going to see the vehicle again. I think we definitely could get a conviction and maybe restitution. Um but really, I think that's as far as it's going to go. You know, Customs and Border Protection is one of the big users of the law enforcement access tool. Uh, they are mandated to check VINs before vehicles are allowed to be exported out of the country. And, and they run many bulk searches. I'm always uh, hearing from those guys down at the ports in Miami uh, when, they're, when they're utilizing the system. So I know they're very active users in trying to stop those vehicles from getting out of the country. And I assume a similar dynamic imported coming in that it could have been stolen from a different part of the world and is maybe landing here in the U.S.? Is there any reverse version of that process? Um, I think there could be. Um, I I would say, and I, and I can't speak for other states because I don't know what they're doing, but uh, those vehicles, at least in Iowa, those are scrutinized a little bit more because usually they're coming in on a foreign document. Um, they're going to have to have an entry summary uh uh, some declarations and things like that. Some of those vehicles, uh, you know, they may have uh, VINs that are shorter. I mean, there may be different things like that that may throw red flags at a government agency that says, hey, we want an investigator to go look at this before we issue a title. And that's that's exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it is we're looking at that vehicle, we're checking the serial number on it, and we're checking other things to make sure that when we issue that for us, the Iowa title or that government issued title, we're issuing it for the right vehicle and that vehicle hasn't been altered or the numbers have been changed. So I would say those get looked at and scrutinized a little more. You know, one of the improvements that we had last year to the law enforcement access tool was the addition of the uh, Canadian stolen vehicles out of CPIC. We, we learned that we weren't obtaining those through NCIC uh, and reached out to the Canadian authorities, and they granted us access. So NCIC returns now include CPIC stolen vehicles, uh, which, which is a big improvement. One that we didn't realize we were uh, missing until we uh, ran some checks through NICB at one of our in-person meetings of the, of the um, subcommittee. So uh, try, constantly making improvements like that to try and 
um, address those imported vehicles and a variety of other things. And, and Ian, just to that point, Canada is where we saw a huge influx of vehicles that those vehicles weren't in here. They weren't imported. Um, a lot of our cloned vehicles in the United States, uh, you know, they, they have the car that they stole. Let's say they committed a rental fraud scheme or something like that. So they have the car. They just need a vehicle to use. They were specifically just going online and finding these VINs at Canada dealerships specifically for that reason. They knew if they put that VIN on from Canada, it wasn't going to be seen and picked up you know, here in the U.S. So you could have a vehicle up in Ontario and a vehicle, you know, sitting in uh, Tennessee, and that's never going to get caught until somebody sees it. My most recent one was actually the dealer took a vehicle, a Canada dealer took a vehicle in on trade. And when he took it in on trade, they ran a Carfax and saw that the vehicle had just been titled in Iowa, which then generated the case in which someone's now actually been charged and we're in the process for. So, yeah, so that that's when the imports, I would say that's when you start to see that kind of stuff. Now, a lot of what you guys talked about are all the, the tools and the mechanisms to detect it and then investigate it and figure out if there's a case. Do you see a future where the life cycle of the vehicle itself could be tightened up that the tools could be in preventing the opportunity for that fraud to begin with, not in lieu of all these tools to, to detect and fight it, but just rethinking the, the life cycle to tighten it up. So those holes aren't even there to begin with. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, as we get into electric titling and, and registration and titling and things of that nature, that may seal up part of the paperwork end of it, um, or at least close some loopholes. You know, are there going to be things that they try to find and things like that? I'm sure. The other thing that we're seeing, uh, and we're starting to see them more and more at conferences across the nation, um, is as the vehicles become more and more connected, um, I think that's going to give law enforcement uh, ways of tracking vehicles that we've never seen before. I would say the hard part to that is we have to get law enforcement up to speed on what the capabilities are. Uh, Tulsa, or not Tulsa, uh, Tesla's um, uh, vehicles like that, uh, they're like driving cell phones, right? Like they're connected, they're pinging, they're, they're doing all kinds of things. They have cameras that come on that you can turn on remotely. We can ping the location of where they're at if they are taken. Some can drive to the, the person, right? Like you can call your car to you. Um, I think as we get into that, it's going to take some time because we all have to learn the capabilities of what we can do and what we can't do. But a lot of that's going to be on the consumer as well to know as these vehicles get newer and newer with the technology, to know what their vehicle's capable of and to know how to, to get into that if they do end up compromised or something like that. I think educating consumers and educating law enforcement as well is a, is a, is a constant battle uh, that we've got to keep we've got to keep fighting. And, and I think there's going to be improvements. We get better every year. Uh, of course, the criminals are getting more clever, it seems. So uh, we kind of uh, are chasing each other around, but it's a it's a fight worth having. That's for sure. 
Well, Tom, Matt, um, I really appreciate you spending some time today chatting about about this. You know, as I said at the outset, what's seemingly so simple is far more complicated and involved. And, you know, Matt, the work you and your colleagues are doing to fight it, and Tom, the work you're doing to support those folks out there in the field is uh, really important work, not only to, you know, fight these fraudsters, but to protect those consumers like the the case study you had, Tom, of someone out in the 13 grand of their, of their savings to uh, prevent that from happening. So thanks. I appreciate the time today. And I know everybody probably enjoyed learning a little bit more about, uh, about vehicle theft. Thanks for having us, Ian. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.